0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new sports book and we talk with the author. This week, we have two authors on the program Martin Rowe and Evander Lumkey. We are talking about their new book, Right Off the Bat Cricket, Baseball, Literature, and Life, published by Paul Dry Books. Over the years, I have tried several times with several sources to get a handle on the sport of cricket. The terms runs and innings give me the sense that there was a connection to baseball, the sport I had grown up watching and playing, but I was never able to sort out wickets from overs, not to mention the fact that a single game could last for five days. But now, after reading the book right off the bat, I finally understand how the sport is played, as well as the strategies that cricketers take, the broad arcs of the game's history, and the key players of the past and the present. By showing the parallels to baseball, rather than insisting on the sport's distinctives, Martin and Evander make cricket comprehensible to an American who grew up on baseball. Even more surprising, I also gained a new understanding of baseball from their book. In reading about the sport as compared to cricket, I found myself looking at baseball from a fresh perspective. This was an informative book, in the sense of explaining the rules and histories of the two sports, but it is also a thoughtful book. Martin and Evander describe themselves as amateurs in writing about baseball and cricket, but they are avid and highly knowledgeable amateurs who offer smart insights. Their book was great fun to read, and it was a pleasure to visit with them about it. So here is the interview. Our guests this week are the co-authors of Right Off the Bat. On the line from New York, we have Evander Lumkey. Evander, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. And sitting next to him, we have Martin Rowe. Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. To start, I'll ask you both to uh, say a few words about yourselves. In the book, you talk about how you came to be fans of, I guess you could call them your your native sports. So I'll ask, uh, first of all, with Evander, how did you come to be a baseball fan?
1: Well, that kind of um, you know, having grown up in the United States and, and specifically in, in New York, uh, it, was, it was sort of by osmosis. I mean, it, it always seemed to be around. Uh, um, I had some uh, certainly. My, my parents were, were were big baseball fans, and um, although my immediate family was was small, I actually had a, a very large family on on both sides. And uh, although this wasn't really a wasn't really a unanimous uh, kind of thing by any stretch. Uh, if there were a favorite uh, sport, it it, it it would be baseball, and there were a lot of relatives that uh, were sort of into it, and I sort of picked up on it, and I, I think by about the age of five or six, I really started to catch on, and this would have been in the late 1950s or so. Um, and it was during a particular time in New York City when uh, the, the two National League teams, the, the Dodgers and Giants, had had moved on to the West Coast. So it was, it was, it was just the Yankees at that point. And um, it was just sort of inevitable uh, going into the early 60s. 1961 was a very big year with Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. So I really got hooked on it uh, around that time. And your mom was a big baseball fan, is that right? She was huge uh, a huge baseball fan, uh, and there would be no reason for it she She grew up in 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 Sicily uh, Palermo, which is where her her family w- was from She was uh, next to youngest in that family, and it was a large one and um, they of all places uh, uh, were i guess invited to Antioch college where my grandfather was was teaching sculpting. So they went to Ohio and really didn't speak any any English. I don't think you really needed a lot to, to teach sculpting. And, you know, my mother was young. She picked up the language fast as her older brothers and sisters did also. And for some reason, she got really hooked on it. They they uh, My grandfather got uh, uh, rheumatic fever. They had to move to Brooklyn. Uh, so they came to New York City and they became huge. Well, a bunch of them became huge Brooklyn Dodgers fans. Um, And, you know, she got to the point where she was even um, uh, keeping uh, score from the radio, which is something that, um, you know, you think about fandom now, um, that's that's pretty
0: fanatical. And, Martin, your love of cricket is also a family legacy, then?
2: It is. My father was a big fan of cricket, and he was a great follower of the county side of Warwickshire in the middle of England in the 1930s and played for his local club and his father, my grandfather was also a member of that club and so uh, going back into the 1910s and 1920s as well so they, uh, well I didn't know my grandfather but my father really gave me a love of cricket and I actually was pretty good at it uh, when I was a kid and uh, he, he followed with interest my cricketing career he then got to work at the center, the mecca of cricket the Marylebone Cricket Club, MCC, and its center Lord's Cricket Ground in North London after he retired from the Army. And I got uh, the great good fortune of uh, being able to get free coaching and free tickets to uh, games at the ground from the ages of about 12 to 14. So that really cemented my love of cricket and my nerdy interest in it uh, in terms of scoring every ball and and. Becoming very
0: interested in the game. So the baseball equivalent was that it, it would be like uh, uh, your father having a job at uh, Yankee Stadium. And,
2: oh yeah, uh, yeah, no, yes, yeah. I mean, he uh, he was the George Costanza, <laughs> <laughs> and he I, I hope he
0: wasn't too much like George Costanza. <laughs>
2: well, he, he he was actually competent at his job, but like George, <laughs> like George Costanza, my father was unfortunately. Under the control of an extremely capricious boss, uh, who was difficult to read and difficult to understand, and somewhat tyrannical, except in being English in a rather passive-aggressive way, rather than the outright uh, aggression that was uh, displayed by the Steinbrenner character. But uh, he didn't last there very long. But he
0: lasted long enough for me to get a
2: lot of perks out of
0: it. So, okay. And so, so you were the first to take an interest in uh, in the other sport, in baseball. So, how were you introduced to baseball? I was introduced to baseball because I came to the United States uh,
2: and began, uh, after I got a degree at uh, NYU, I then went on to work at a publishing company at which Evander was working. And, uh, Not I, very hard, by the way. He wasn't working very hard. <laughs> anyway, I we somehow got to know that I was a, a fan of small ball games, and I, at that stage, was a passionate follower of the England cricket team as I still am but in the mid-1990s the England cricket team was notorious for losing. It was one of the worst teams in the world and I, Evander and I started talking about cricket and baseball and it transpired the Yankees seemed to win more often than lose so not only was Evander a Yankees fan and therefore I thought uh, I should support the Yankees but they seemed to win and I, I wanted to support a team that actually won something <laughs> rather than lost all the time so I started becoming interested in the Yankees, and then uh, the fateful day, in Evander invited me to a Yankees
0: game. And that changed everything?
2: Well, that changed everything, because uh, for me what was so interesting about going to a Yankees game, especially having grown up in England and having a father who worked at Lords, and Lords is many ways the Yankees' equivalent because it is the magisterial center of the conscience of cricket in the way that the Yankees are somehow the sort of the gold standard of baseball in that they contain so much of the great characters and the great lore of the game. Cricket in at Lords is very staid and traditional. People wear ties when they sit in the pavilion. The members are there. There's a very sort of old-fashioned... Uh, quality to the cricket at Lord. So when I got to Yankee Stadium, I sort of recognized that I had reached the sort of, uh, the, I would joined the mothership. This was the, this was the center of it, but of course the game itself was radically different. There was noise, there was advertising everywhere, there was um, music being played. It felt very commercial, unlike cricket, which was quite quiet and stayed. But as we say in the book, the moment the pitcher threw the first pitch and it, and it eventually landed with a thud in the mitt of the catcher uh, and the guy swung at it and missed or swung at it and hit, I just knew this was a game that I could completely understand because at heart, both cricket and baseball and this is the contention of the book are essentially two very simple games mm-hmm. a guy with a ball is trying to get the ball past the bat uh, and a guy is trying to hit it and if he hits it, he might hit it in the air and get caught, it's the same principle so I immediately understood the game, and uh, I, I appreciated its different rhythms. I appreciated the American dimension of it, the uh, the apple pie qualities of it, the seventh inning stretch, the hot dogs, the smells, the the national anthem. Uh, there was a sense that this was true Americana, and uh, I I've, from then on I've appreciated. Baseball for its extra dimensions as much as I've learned to appreciate cricket's extra dimensions.
0: So 15 years later, you had 15 years' worth of conversations about your respective sports, and you decide to write a book that offers something of a, of a, of a parallel primer to baseball and cricket. But your explanation of the games in the, in the book goes well beyond the action on the field or, or the rules of the games. As you say in the introduction, you're more interested in, in the narrative arc of the two sports, and this is something that I really enjoyed about the book. It, it was much more like a handbook to the cultures and the histories of baseball and cricket, as opposed to just uh, how the games are played. So Could you talk about your aim in in writing the book? Well, this is Martin Well,
2: I felt that uh, given the multitude of ways one can find information these days, especially on the web. There is no need to recite ad nauseam the various different rules and permutations and fielding positions in cricket and shots you can play in cricket and the types of balls that you can deliver in baseball and cricket because you can find all of that kind of information at length on Wikipedia or many other sites. We do contain a glossary at the back of the book for those people who are interested, but we felt that would be a very boring way to approach the game. We don't want people who are either cricket fans or baseball fans, who are trying to learn about the other sport, to obsess over rules and the kind of arcane details that immediately puts the other fan off. So what we decided to do, and this was actually more of a a factor of the way we are as fans and the way we are as people, because we're both of us interested in literature and storytelling, is to look at the deeper issues behind these games. And so we wanted to reflect not only on the cultural baggage that both games have and how they have reflected the challenges and opportunities of their societies over the uh, decades, but also to look at some of the metaphysical ideas that are reflected in both games, particularly the idea of time, and so uh, we wanted to really delve into that and explore it in a more interesting way. And I'm glad you said and book, because this is very much the kind of book that if you are not interested in sport at all, uh, the actual mechanics of a game, you can take and appreciate the both games, I think, mm-hmm. for those extra dimensions. So we really wanted to in- broaden the idea of what a sports book was away from this is the rule here, and this rule here, and this position here, and this position there. That wasn't interesting to
0: us. Something else I enjoyed about the book is that It is an introduction to the languages of baseball and cricket. And at the very start of the book, in the first two paragraphs, you have summaries of two games from 2009, the first test in that year's Ashes series between England and Australia, and game four of the World Series between the Yankees and the Phillies. So in turning to the book now, I want to ask you about language and the importance of understanding the languages of the two sports. Well, we
2: decided to start the book off with actually descriptions of two plays in these games, not even a summary of the games, two plays, uh, not particularly uh, big plays, in that they didn't involve a a big hit or they didn't involve a particularly stunning piece of of physical athleticism, but they were nonetheless significant within the context of the game. But we also decided to throw a curveball at the reader by having two paragraphs that would be chock-full of the most obscure and most obscurantist jargon that we could possibly come up with for either for either sport in order to show people exactly what annoys the other <laughs> fan about the particular sport, which is that baseball and cricket can be very jargon-filled, cliquey and intimidating games to those who don't know anything about the other. And we wanted to do it and then say to the reader... If you've made it through those two paragraphs, congratulations. You may have absolutely no idea what's going in one of them and be totally clued in to what's happening in the other. You may actually not know both. You may have no idea what's happening in either of those sports, and you may have no interest. But stay with us. We'll explain it all, or more importantly, we'll show you that you don't need to know everything that's going on in terms of that language in order to understand the nature of the book. So... In many ways, it was a sort of a false beginning—an attempt to put people off at the very beginning, under the principle: if you can give people the worst bit at the very beginning, then the rest of the book will feel feel like a breeze. So that was our
0: plan there, in particular. So, did you have to uh, during the course of the writing? Did you did you check each other in terms of no, don't put that in; the other people won't won't understand it, or they'll get they'll get stuck on it. Yes, we very much uh,
2: gave the uh, what we had written to the other writer uh in other words i would show evander what i'd written about cricket and he would if he didn't understand what i was saying then we would uh, i would revise it and likewise i mean the challenge for both of us is that we both know a lot about our own games and like the fan that we want to um characterize as a bore who Goes way into the deep end far too quickly. We had to check ourselves from going into the deep end, into the thicket of, of obscure, arcane data and language. So we were very much uh, aware of that issue. We also had an extremely good editor at Paul Dry Books, John sweat who knew a great deal about baseball and was very inquisitive and um, precise editor when it came to both cricket and baseball so he really helped tidy up our our language and make sure that we were very precise about what we said in order that it wouldn't be confusing to lots of people i will say having been in the united states for so many years i too was getting confused over the term inning which is a baseball term and innings which is a cricket term so i too sometimes had to be corrected from my own americanizations so uh, we had a quite a few checks and balances to make sure that we got the terms right
1: and I have to uh, say that I was at a little bit of a disadvantage uh, in this sense. Uh, Martin knows way more about baseball than I know about uh, about cricket, um, and I'm glad he brought up uh, our copy editor and our editor's uh, uh, name because the book um, actually went through went through two edits. I mean, we're a couple of publishing types, mm-hmm. and it, we were pretty sure that uh, that what we were submitting to our publisher um, was you know cleaner than a hound's tooth. When in fact, we got the first. Uh, Copy edited uh, proof back, and uh, I mean we, we couldn't believe uh, how much stuff uh, either we missed or how much wasn't clear uh, to that to, would, would have been unclear to the fan of one or the other sport. And then uh, so we went through a, a pretty serious uh, rewrite, um, uh, much more than we anticipated. I'll, I'll put it that way, uh, all to the good. Uh, and then we went through a, a second uh, uh, rewrite. So. Uh, the 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 editing that we received was 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 a huge help, um, and uh, there would have certainly um, I had a lot more questions I think for Martin than, than vice versa because mm-hmm. because uh, just simply because I I just didn't have that familiarity with uh, with the with, uh, cricket.
2: The challenge with these books, like the challenge with so many books uh, along these lines, is you, is what to leave out. Mm-hmm. One could always explain with greater detail. One could always. Uh, qualify a particular record or stat by saying this that or the other but that's where we felt the most danger lay so this book will not satisfy the people who belong to sabre necessarily the mm-hmm. for, for baseball research and i'm sure some of the uh, the boffins who who currently edit Wisden cricket cricketer will question some of the analyses of certain cricket games. Uh, But that's not who we're trying to write for. We're trying to write for somebody who has more than a nodding acquaintance. But even if they don't have a nodding acquaintance, they can still gain some
0: pleasure out of the the stories that we tell. So that's our aim there. So I want to stick with this question of, of language, and I want to ask a question that gets beyond the book. And I'll direct it at you, Martin, since you've had to live your life and conduct a career in American English In learning the language of another sport, uh, certainly it's possible to gain a working proficiency with that that sports language. So, for for example, when I finished your book, I was able to go back to that first paragraph that describes that particular play in a cricket match and understand what it said. Uh, But... Even though I was now proficient in the language of cricket, it's it's a different step to be fluent or to have a native proficiency in another sports language. And so I'll I'll ask you first, Martin, is it really possible to gain a, a native knowledge, a native proficiency in the language of another sport? Well it depends what you want to
2: the language to do. If you want to be able to uh, do more than do the sport equivalent of find a hotel room mm-hmm. or a meal at a restaurant, talk to the natives and be able to um, express some metaphysical ideas, then this book will give you will give you that. The book will give you more than just elementary ideas. I'm very glad you said that you could understand that first paragraph by the end of the book. That was what we wanted. But what I find so fascinating is that when I get into a a taxi cab in New York City, when I speak to anybody who is from South Asia, the only thing I have to say to them is, what do you think of Sachin Tendulkar? And a whole conversation will open up. Now they may not have any connection to cricket at all beyond the fact that their father or their mother or they came over uh, from India or Pakistan or Bangladesh uh, or they may be from of uh, West Indian origin and maybe of uh, South Asian origin in the West Indies or Afro-Caribbean origin but they will they will know who that person is and they will have a sense of him as this cricketer beyond a cricketer so in some ways even though they don't necessarily play the game even though they don't really know how the game works they will have a feeling of him as this extraordinary and astonishing athlete who has been playing the game at the very highest levels for over twenty years so in that regard the notion of a native fan is being extended as more and more people come to the united states from South Asia and the Caribbean where the connection is no longer with England, but with this multinational game that is called cricket and that is now extending itself throughout America's cities. So uh, this may be a rather elaborate way of asking, the, answering the question. My response would be, I absolutely anticipate that Americans will soon begin to have a nodding acquaintance, more than a nodding acquaintance with cricket. The question is, what do we mean by Americans? And that's one of the questions we've, always, we've asked, in, we've been really addressing in this book, which is baseball is not an American sport, just as cricket is not an English sport. It is now a multinational sport played by many, many different peoples coming from all over the world to play
0: it in many different places. So on returning to the book, you, you structured the book with apologies to cricket, in, in nine chapters, or innings as you call them, but you do follow the cricketing pack practice of adding intervals, throughout the book. And you typically have two of these intervals in each chapter, and and these are very nice diversions. I enjoyed them a lot into into a particular topic or a mini biography or an account of some episode in one of the sports histories. And I want to ask about the two intervals you have in your chapter on the fundamentals of the the two sports, because I think that these two asides in, in that opening chapter make clear how these games, going back to what you said earlier, Martin, in how they are played, are linked in some fundamental way. Maybe we could say that they, they share DNA. So I'll ask you first to discuss the interval, the interval about both baseball and cricket being games of inches.
1: Well, you know, that's, the, the game of inches is, is sort of the, uh, uh, the just to take the baseball side of it, only the, the baseball cliche. And, um, you know, what is, what is it what does it mean exactly? Well, uh, the ball that uh, lands... Foul by an inch uh, is the difference between a basis clearing double and a strike. Uh, Nothing's happened there. Uh, You know, now the players have these huge gloves. Uh, The ball that. you know, the the, the fielder dives for the ball to make the catch that, that sort of ticks off his, his glove. Well, you know, that's that extra less than an inch uh, that has made a huge difference between between a game saving catch or just the, a catch during the course of the game that could be important or not and not making one. Uh, the ball striking off the bat, um, you know, it's, the, the cricket bat is sort of shaped uh, to, to hit a ball uh, in a way that the baseball bat isn't quite. And you know the biggest cliché is to hit a round ball with a round bat squarely, and it uh, you know thinking about it, it's almost impossible to to to, to hit a baseball. Uh, but the difference between uh, you know um, a hard pitch coming in at ninety miles an hour, the batter swings, and you know the difference between his hitting the ball and powering it into the outfield or or, or past the outfield into the stands, and hitting what what could be called a um, home run in an elevator shaft, which is the pop up that goes way up in the air that's ultimately caught is a fraction of an inch. It's, um, so just from, from the, from the baseball standpoint, I'm not sure this really answers your question exactly, but, um, uh, baseball is, a, a, a game of, of, uh, precision. Uh, there's, it, it's, it's a very ingenious game. It's very lifelike in, in, in a lot of ways too. the, the, uh, taking the runner going into the base, uh, uh, he has to be tagged, uh, with the ball, uh, in order to be out. Well, you know, some of it gets to be an umpire's call, a judgment, uh, you know, it's a so-called bang-bang play, something just happened so fast, what happened, the umpire is right there. But, you know, did did that uh, guy trying to steal uh, the base, sneak his foot or his hand in, uh, you know, two inches too late, uh, is is was, was a tag made uh, on one part of his body, made, you know, a fraction of a second or, you know, an inch or so, more or less where it should have been uh so it's uh you know again it, it it does get back to the to the timing issue that that martin was was talking about which which is so important uh, uh to the sports both timing as, as something that goes on in the field and the whole issue of time and lore and history of the sports, which is a whole other thing uh uh that, that, that takes you backward and forward so it's it's um it's. It's. It, 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 I think Martin could probably talk about the cricket end of it uh, a little bit more. Well, more both games.
2: Up. Both games are games of contingency and tangent, because an angle of a ball coming off a bat, and the relationship, are in terms of space, between the ball, the bat, and the player, are always changing and fluid, and yet they both, they all impact upon the the next play so you have an awful lot of luck within the predictability of the same thing happening over and over again. The baseball game is basically you watching somebody throw a ball at somebody holding a piece of wood over and over and over again and yet within that extreme predictability and stasis you have these moments of change that concatenate that form this this link and chain that continually uh, leads off I mean, in surprising directions. And I think both games are the kinds of games that you would say they're very predictable, but at any game you'll see something you've never seen before. and And that is their magic and their genius. And this is the paradox of time in that they seem extremely quotidian, the same pitch, the same player, yeah and especially in the longest form of the game of cricket, which can go on for five days, it seems extraordinarily inert. Nothing is happening for hours on end. And yet, both in cricket and in baseball, a moment will occur which will change the entire course of the game. It will happen in an instant, and you will probably be tying your shoelace at that particular moment and miss it. (laughs) So both games have this collapse notion of time and contingency, and both have this long sense of open-ended timelessness, which, of course, plays into the nostalgia and, the, and those mythic moments of a sport which exist outside time. Both have that. So this, uh, this genius for the micro move, the tiny edge, the slight miss, the, the failed catch, the caught catch, are all magnificently
0: portrayed in um, Cricket and Baseball. So then the other interval that I I found revealing in that first chapter, and this connects back to what what you were just saying, Martin, was the one about waiting on the field, and as you title it, loitering with intent. Could you talk about that, please?
2: Well, like in in baseball and cricket, there's an awful lot of time when nothing appears to be happening. Mm -hmm. People are standing around on this green, gauzy, beautifully manicured outfield, uh, just waiting, waiting for a ball to come to them or waiting to uh, move around somewhere. And they could go for days, (laughs) what seems like days, but certainly minutes without anything happening to them at all. But the great genius of both games is that the moment one assumes that they will never see the ball if you're a player, of course the ball will fly its way towards you. You will be under enormous pressure to catch that ball or field that ball and throw it, back to a base uh, in baseball terms or to the uh, the wickets in cricket terms and upon that play may hang the entire game so here again you have this uh, this strange tension Unlike in fo- uh, soccer, where, where, you know, you're running around and it's likely that in every play you're going to be continually moving and the fluidity of the point is the game, and this is the case with other games as well, baseball and cricket has a lot of stasis and then sudden movement, but that's in the outfield. In the infield, of course, or uh, around the pitch, which is, uh, what it, is the cricket area, where there's a ton of activity that takes place. And that cri- that activity in baseball and cricket can be extremely frenetic, and involve an awful lot of mistakes, which is half the fun. People failing to make base, people uh, in in baseball terms, in cricket people what is called running each other around, not reaching base or the wicket in time. But in the outfield, you have these sudden moments of panic. And I, <laughs> having been a cricketer my time, and you know you're right out there, and you're it's a lovely sunny day, and it's and, you know, an attractive woman is walking by and you're thinking, what a glorious way to play this noble sport. And you're scuffing the outfield with your shoes. And then suddenly a yell goes out and there is a red spear coming at you at great speed and you have to catch it. Uh, there, there is that delicious quality of uh, you can never rest. Uh, you can never relax, even though the game is all about what one would think the joys of a long summer day so that was the kind of thing we were trying to talk about there the uh, the strange flaccidity of the game and then this extraordinary tension
0: that occurs and that's i i coach nine and ten year olds in baseball and that is the uh the greatest challenge and uh anyone who's ever been to a little league baseball game well the, their picture of little league are our, our kids out in the outfield looking through their gloves picking the grass, watching the game on the other field and, and as you said Martin then suddenly there's uh, a ball hit to the outfield and this shout that goes up from the bench and from the stands and, and uh, this kid is caught off guard and has to make this sudden play that will, that will turn the game. So um, I, I, I like this, this uh, discussion of time you have and I want to turn to that. So this is in, in the fourth chapter, the fourth inning of the book and this was really a rich chapter I found in, in discussing the various ways in which our sense of time enters into the way we play and watch both cricket and and baseball. And, uh, Martin, at the beginning of that chapter, you describe an episode from when you were playing cricket. So could you start us off by by telling us what happened?
2: Well... What I This was uh, when I was at university many years ago, and I was playing a game against whom I do not remember, on which ground I do not remember, in which year I do not remember. All I know is that it was a nice sunny day, and at one point during the game, a ball came towards me, it bounced on the pitch, as it most often does in cricket, came up to about my midriff, and I steered the ball with the bat through an area of the cricket field known as the covers, And the ball kept on moving, and it kept on moving fast, and kept on moving further and further away from the fielder. So whereas I previously thought I might run two runs, which might be the equivalent of getting to second base in baseball, the ball kept on speeding away, and so that I could run the full length of it and get what's called a boundary of four runs. And so for me, that was the quintessential example of timing, and timing in both cricket and baseball is key because as as Evander said, and this is one of the things I really appreciate about baseball, it is extremely hard to hit a baseball with a baseball bat. Unlike cricket, which has a flat bat and a wide surface that allows you to hit the ball fairly easily, maybe not fairly well, but fairly easily, that round bat makes it extremely hard to hit the ball directly back and it makes foul-offs and all those kinds of things very much uh, easier to accomplish. Um, And so that sense of hitting the ball at exactly the right moment of its trajectory, in exactly the right part of the bat to get the maximum sweetness of the, the depth of the wood behind the bat, so that the ball goes at exactly the right area that you've guided it to with your use of your hands and the use of your arms, that is the essence Of both sports. And for us, for me, that memory extends way beyond any quotidian fact of chronological memory. And by holding that shot in the memory and retaining it after 25 years, including the sensory experience of uh, hitting that ball and the smell of the grass and the sense of that day, is what we call in the book the kairos moment from the greek word for a timeless moment a moment out of time as opposed to chronos the chronological time which is associated with remembering days and events and places so this is what we talk about in cricket those moments
0: out of time that are contained within memory And Evander, do you have examples of that from from uh, from baseball? Of uh, you also use this term, the spots of time uh, that stand out as opposed to uh, remembering scores, remembering the entire length of a game. Instead, there are moments that stand out for you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there's always the 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 parallel uh, experience that anyone who's played baseball has or, or some of its equivalents in, in, in the urban game of stickball ball mm-hmm. of, of just having that that, that one time or the two times where you've just just really just just hit the ball just right and it just went you know farther and uh, more sweetly than, than any other time you could have imagined and, you know I think that that um, you know certainly baseball players themselves have uh, you know if you've watched them these are the, the major league guys the, 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 the professionals usually the stars are the ones who are interviewed later on. Uh, their're the, the memories of uh, of very i mean these guys play in in some cases thousands of games i mean i don 't know how tens of thousands of innings they can remember very precisely what pitcher uh who was pitching who threw what uh and how they hit it and uh they, it's it 's not just uh, one or two moments with uh, with with these players but uh these are these are very very vivid memories uh for for them these are uh uh, sometimes life transforming experiences and um, you know it's it's uh, it, I think this is one of the things that 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 that, that makes uh, cricket and baseball that they make cricket and baseball uh, so you know incredibly um, lifelike uh, is that you know it, 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 there's an element of uh, of 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 the miraculous sometimes that uh, i mean it occurred it could occur in any sport um but I think because, uh, uh, especially in the case of cricket also, the, the, these games are played on, on, on a daily basis that, uh, uh, you know, over and over again, you know, there does get to be that sense of, uh, well, you know, this is inevitable, this isn't. But, you know, go to any any baseball game, uh, no matter how many you've seen, I, I can almost guarantee you, you you'll, you'll see something there that you've never seen before. And uh, listen to the professionals there. They'll, they'll see something that that, uh, that they that has never happened before. So it's um, you know, the, the, the time, the spots of time. Uh, um, it, these are 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 in, in some unique, in in some way unique
0: uh, to both baseball and cricket. <laughs> And, and what I enjoyed about that, and in particular in martin 's description of of uh, of his hit it, with, with cricket, is uh, uh, the rest of the moment becomes fuzzy and, and I think Martin, you wrote that you don 't even remember who you were playing you don 't remember the outcome and going back to uh, my coaching of of nine and ten year olds playing Little League baseball, uh, I, I tried to tell this to players they they don 't listen to me I, instead I tell it, tell it to my kids they have to listen to me that that in playing baseball. Uh, you're going to have these moments where uh, you make a great play, you make a great hit. My son playing little league baseball the other night, he got the first two outs of a triple play. When have you? When do you come? I've never heard of a triple play in little league baseball. And and but I tell them, you'll remember those moments for the rest of your life. You won't remember the outcome of games. You won't remember teams that you played. Uh, I remember from playing Little League Baseball... A perfect slide when I came into home plate and I and I slid under the tag and I don't remember who the team was. I don't remember if we won the game. And, and so that's why in thinking about that and thinking uh, of my memories of baseball and watching my kids play baseball, this is why the, this chapter on time really uh, resonated with me because uh, you explained in a way that I never could uh, how that works and why that matters to us and our memories of the games.
1: Well, time and space are are very big factors uh, in both sports. Uh, time for all the reasons we've talked about. And space, I mean, these fields are are, are gigantic. I, th- I think if you were to take your boy, and uh, maybe you have to, to um, uh, a major league stadium where he's allowed to go on to the field. I know when I was about his age, and I went on the field in Yankee Stadium, and, and Bob Costas famously tells a very similar story. We're about the same age, same generation. Uh, you know, you, you look from from the outfield, and you can say, well, this was this is where so and so was playing. You know, the game going on is is so far away; it's almost a rumor from from out here. You know, it's just it's just uh, how do they maintain the level, as we discussed, the concentration? It's all the stuff that, that you have to impart to to little leaguers too. You always have to be on your toes. This morning, described you never know when, you know, you're going to have
2: to get on your horse and go after that ball. But thankfully, they don't, which is one of the reasons why baseball and cricket are so much fun, no matter where, what age they are. It's the dreaminess of cricket yeah. and baseball, the, the, the length of the days, the sense of the, the largeness of the field. Unlike in soccer or American football, where they, they, the field is somewhat contained and the ball can spread from one end of the field to the other very quickly, The focal point of both baseball and cricket is in one spot, and the rest of it is just there just in case something happens. So in many ways, it's nice to encourage the dreaminess that can can occur, especially if your T interval in cricket or your seventh inning stretch... <laughs> May have involved a large amount of alcohol being consumed either by you the fan or you the player, which means that the rest of the game might remain something something of a blur. But uh, so I, I like that uh, extra sort of spatial and temporal openness that can allow uh, the quirky and the crazy and the forgetful and the sloppy as well as the brilliant to occur. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So now that said, you do describe in the book the accomplishments of some of the key figures in, in the history of the two sports. And rather than mentioning all these figures and their accomplishments, I'm going to, to revert to the format of a standard sports talk show and ask, ask you both to make a list. Uh, so I'll ask you both for your respective sports, Evander for baseball, Martin for cricket. Uh, name for, for the listeners three essential figures from each sport, from the, from the present or the past, who are, in your view, necessary uh, to understanding baseball and cricket. So, Evander, I'll start with you. Who are three key figures uh, that uh, uh, someone new coming to baseball would need to start with? That's an interesting question. I think, um, and I'll
1: go chronologically, I I think the first one uh, would be Babe Ruth. Um, And he's had a huge impact on cricket also in turning... Specific to baseball, though, he, he turned baseball from a game of, of strategy from the, 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 the Ty Cobb, who was another great player, uh, stealing bases uh, one at a time, uh, to the power game. Um, and, you know, this was almost on, uh, not to oversell this, but almost on an Einsteinian level. And uh, then no one had really thought about the home run as being an offensive weapon. It did never occur to people to hit the ball, to batters to try to hit the ball into the stands. Um and once uh, Ruth came along, who started as, as a great pitcher too, uh, which, is, which makes him, I mean, the lefty o Babe Ruth, there are very, very few baseball players that were great at, at, at both, that they could do both. Uh, once uh, it, was, it, was, it was discovered that he was really drawing in the fans um, uh, as a slugger, as someone who was hitting home runs, uh, it, it just transformed the, the, the game completely, and it was almost like Roger Bannister running the first four minute sub four minute mile. Once he did it, everyone started. Well, not everyone, but other people started to do it too. It was, it was this barrier, that, that, that this this mental construct, that this this wall or whatever that it just had to be broken down. And once Ruth did it, uh, Jimmy Fox came along, uh, Hank Greenberg came along. Uh, Lou Gehrig. There were a bunch of sluggers that that followed in, in his in his footsteps. So I would say he was really, uh, you know, to me in in the baseball universe, he's been compared to the godhead, and and he he still is to this day. Um, second, I would have to say um, would be uh, Branch Rickey, uh, who is uh, was a baseball player in the major leagues for a very 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 short amount of time in a very undistinguished career, but. Uh, His contribution was as an executive, uh, uh, specifically for the St. Louis Cardinals first, where he developed uh, what's called the farm system, uh, which is a system of of minor league clubs wherein uh, the major league teams uh, were able to to develop uh, talent. Uh, so that it wasn't just uh, a case of, uh, especially in those longer ago days when, when fewer people went to college, where the scouts would go out to, to scout the semi-pro players... Uh, uh, even the, the, the players in high school, uh, to, 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 to sort of go to, to the, the ends of the, the country to find uh, talent, uh, they would be able through a, a series of teams that they control to, to do that. But his biggest contribution, uh, leads me to player number three, uh, maybe he is the biggest of all, which was, uh, uh, and the most important figure, I think, in, in, maybe next to Ruth, maybe including Ruth, in baseball, which is Jackie Robinson. Uh, and it seems just uh, inconceivable to us uh, uh, today to to consider baseball as as a white man's sport only, Uh, but in fact until the late 1940s that's exactly what it was, and it was Branch Rickey uh, who had the, the stick-to-itiveness uh, uh, to, to, to sign Jackie Robinson as the first African-American to ultimately to play Major League Baseball and there were some great black uh, Negro League uh, players uh, before Robinson uh, but he, Jackie Robinson was the first to kick down the, the, the door uh, for minority players, uh, for players of color uh, and I think that what, what he had to endure uh, uh, not just from, from, from uh, fans but from opposing teams and even his own teammates um, uh, makes him um, a a, a transcendent figure. And he's to this day the only only player whose number, which is number 42, has been retired throughout all of baseball. No one else, except now Mariano Mariano Rivera, wears the number. uh, But once he retires, no one else will wear that number in honor of Jackie Robinson. So those those are the three.
2: Well, in terms of cricket, it's actually interesting to hear Evander's three because in many ways they are most important because of what they did to change the nature of baseball and the nature of the way baseball was uh, was embedded within society and my three cricketers are somewhat similar the first cricketer is W.G. Grace who was I think you can fairly easily call him the Ty Cobb of cricket in that he was the one who took a 19th century game and turned it into a 20th century professional sport. Like Cobb, he was extremely competitive. Like Cobb, he was uh, deeply embedded in gamesmanship and a belief in Grace's case that uh, the rules didn't apply to him particularly. Uh, he was like uh, Babe Ruth in that he took the game and made it more popular than the game itself. In other words, W.G. Grace was representative of something more than just cricket. He was representative of England. He was representative of a professional, uh, larger-than-life expressive notion of cricket as a game of competitiveness and uh, the kind of sort of imperial strength that uh, Britain Felt it needed to. Uh, it had during the Edwardian era. Era. He was uh, a big man in every way. He was a big, tall, large, rotund, loud, impressive character. W. G. Grace. The second person is uh, Don Bradman, the great Australian cricketer, who in many ways contradicts the notion that uh, you couldn't uh, have a person who completely stood out from everybody else in the game. He was by far the greatest batsman who ever lived. His stats are more impressive than just about everybody else by a distance. Mm-hmm. And he was so dominant that he caused, uh, by default, one of the most uh, shocking periods in cricket, where the the English, when they were playing Australia in the nineteen 19- early 1930s, decided to concoct a way of playing the game where they would literally try and bruise and hurt the opponent because their concern was that they didn't want Bradman to get near the ball. So they tried to get the ball near Bradman and others by by doing something called body line, which we talk about in the book. And that was a huge crisis because, as the saying goes, it wasn't cricket. And uh, he was by far and Untouchable. It's unlikely that anybody will ever be as good at hitting the ball as him. So he's the sort of the aberration that casts a light on, rest, on the rest of the game. The third person I would say is uh, the aforementioned Sachin Tendulkar, currently playing uh, cricket, as he has been for 21 years, for India. And a man who not only represents the kind of incredible discipline and sporting prowess for somebody who's been playing the game at the very highest levels, at the very highest levels, for 20 years, but a representative of the new face of cricket. The cricket uh, from India with a billion fans, who is a global brand, Mm -hmm. who is used to sell virtually everything in India, and who is taking cricket into this sort of globalized, multimedia, highly financed, uh, expression of um, Indian confidence of a shift in the direction of uh, the, the notion of the imperium of cricket, the, the world of cricket away from both Australia and England to becoming an expression of uh, a newly confident developing world and he is a representative of that so rather like Jackie Robinson he's literally changing the colour of the game. He is showing this game as no longer the white man's preserve, but as a game that is multitudinous,
0: multifarious, and expressive of a, of a globalized um, sport. So, you are both clearly well versed in the history of, of these sports. You are students of the literatures and cultures of baseball and cricket. But I want to ask you about numbers. At the beginning of the book, you, you reprint scorecards that you each uh, filled out while watching a game when you were younger. Uh, Martin, in your case, you were watching a cricket match. Evander, you were watching a baseball game. And, and these, these scorecards are quite elaborate. They're, they're well done. Uh, but in looking at them, um, it made me think of the importance of numbers, not only scorekeeping but also player statistics, team statistics for our understanding and appreciation of the game. So are numbers important for our understanding and our appreciation of cricket and baseball?
2: agree with that. I think you can appreciate the sport without necessarily being a a stats guy or a stats gal. I think you can enjoy the rhythms of the game, you can enjoy the simple fact that your team has to score more runs than the other without knowing about ribbies or uh, strikeout numbers per game or uh, all of the notions in cricket of how many made novas they've done and what's their economy rate, um, those kinds of things. Uh, I think, unfortunately, they're very, it's a very attractive <laughs> aspect of the game, and both fans, and we make some fun of both fans, since we're sets of fans, since we're both sets of fans, uh, that they tend to be out of shape, um, remarkably un, uh, prepossessing individuals who are just obsessed with statistics and arcane details, and so I think both cricket and baseball fans can get heavily into stats too much and drive everybody crazy. So I wouldn't say that you have to become a stats lover. But yes, I can tell you the various uh, stats of some of the great players um, and uh, you would probably move you know, a little bit further away from me in the bar or ask for a different seat on an airplane if you were sitting next to me if I started talking about that in cricket. And I fancy the same is the case in baseball. <laughs>
1: Well, the, um, the the game that uh, has my scorecard was um, I was 14 at the time. My handwriting was a lot neater then. Uh, I was um, going to a uh, scientific uh, school, and um, numbers were a very very big part of actually what the, what what I was more into then than, than I became in later life. Um, and the, the scorekeeping system that, that I used was, was especially then was, was very primitive, um, and then that's why I wanted to include it for for, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, each of the players um, on the field has a specific number, and um, each of the and there's sort of an arcane system for, for for how to you know be able to. You can recreate a game basically by looking at uh, looking at the scorecard. You know, saber is. Um, just to not exactly to dis- disagree with one but just to, to go in a slightly different different direction um, I mean there's there's a person very well known named Bill james who uh, uh, invented a term a term called Sabermetrics. metrics uh, or at least if he didn't invent it it's certainly associated with him Sabre stands for society of American baseball research and basically uh, these are our uh, fellow nerds who who belong to this organization and have annual meetings and i've got, I've actually gone to I've, I've never actually become a member of, uh to, to, to my somewhat regret, but I have gone to a couple of their their uh, what's called the hot stove league meetings uh in the in the winter time and um they, they do tend to be very very statistic oriented uh, uh however now agreeing with martin uh the, the speakers uh, uh you know vary from from former uh, from from professional uh, sports writers to uh former players to to current players and um uh, The the thing that the the juice that really gets does get—I have to admit—that does get the fans going is when they hear, you know, such and such a pitcher. um, I happen to know one who played, you know, in the 1950s. He won 50 games in the major leagues. You know, describing, you know, oh Joe DiMaggio, you know, he hit a ball off me. They're still looking for it. You know, Ted Ted Williams. Williams, I can never get this guy out. Of course, that's that's the thing that really that really gets the fans going. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have to. The, the numbers are important, uh, uh, but I, I guess I guess uh, I'm coming around a little bit more, maybe to Martin's point. Well,
2: well, let me just let me revise what I said there because I think what what you were looking at with those scorecards is a facet of baseball and cricket that I can appreciate is that each game, as represented by a dot on the page or a, or a notation in the scorecard is representative of the fact that you are co-creating the memory as mm-hmm. it goes along. And you are, in some ways, engaged in a creative act by taking a, making a, a diagrammatic shape of your experience that day. Or, in the case of the, the, that inning, uh, over a couple of days in the cricket case. And I think, in some ways, being writers and publishers... Uh, just like Anne, Anne Lamotte has a book Bird by Bird, when somebody asked what do you, how do you write, you do it bit by bit. You don't think of the entirety of the goal that you have to face out, You have to do it sentence by sentence, word by word. In the same way, the sport and the, the both games, the games and the contests that you're looking at develop ball by ball, by ball, and take shape and grow as a narrative into something very surprising that you would never have predicted at the beginning and and gain their depth through that way. So in that regard, the numbers, the accretion of detail and data as they occur over the shape of the game are another form of narrative structure as well as words and memory. Mm -hmm. So keeping score is literally a way of accounting and recounting the day, uh, recounting and and telling the story of what's happened. So for me, in that regard, numbers I can see are the sort of building blocks of the memory of the day through scorecards, just as well as the memories of the the guy who couldn't find the ball that was hit by Mickey Mantle, that kind of thing.
0: And I wonder if it's more, if the numbers, uh, my question came from thinking of how I was formed as a baseball fan. And, uh, Evander, maybe you had a similar experience as a baseball fan. In that, uh, when you're nine and ten years old, you're not really uh, aware of these larger issues of time and, and narrative and so forth. What I was aware of was, was what was on the back of a baseball card. And, uh, uh, you know, I could recite. Batting averages and home runs and statistics for for my favorite players and I, I had memorized the uh, the lists of uh, all of the the winners of the MVP awards in the National League and the American League and that that became kind of the foundation of my of my baseball knowledge and and then now I've moved on to uh, I would agree with you, Martin. This this greater interest in uh, uh, the narrative of the game and and the culture of the game. So uh, so and think about what you said. And it's noteworthy that both of your scorecards are from when you were younger, uh, mm-hmm. when you were forming your interest in the game. I'm I'm wondering how much uh, more important or how key. That uh, tapping into the the statistical side and the number side of the game, how important that is in informing our our understanding of the game and being fans.
1: Well, one of the um, when I started uh, talking about the statistics that were always on the baseball cards, which all the, the as as you know, all the baseball card all the baseball fans started out as kids collecting. You know, I would go to my father and say, "Well, what is this uh, ODP? What is PCT? What is What uh, What is RBI? What is HR? You know, all of that stuff. What do they they mean?" Of course, you had to explain. Okay, you, you read down that they, they stand for. These are words. They're, they're they're abbreviations for words. Okay, and then okay, the 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 numbers that that follow from from there. Yeah, I have to say that um, what my experiences were, were very similar in, in in many ways as as a as a fan, not as somebody playing, but as a fan, and I. I you know, I, I guess fandom kind of came before playing uh, I hadn't really thought about it that much But I guess I was, I was just only watching it As far back as I can remember Five or six uh, Before I was really playing it It was certainly not well um, It was The, 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 the statistics were, were grabbing me And um, they're You know They're, they're, they're important I mean um, You know I go to a Sabre meeting And You uh, you know, say well, 1941. You know, Ted Williams batted 405. That is a chorus of voice 406. Like what? 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 Babe Ruth at 713. 714. What's the matter with these 714 home runs. Uh The statistics, y- yes, they are very important. And I think, it, it, in a way, that they, they you know, over different eras, they become a, an objective measure of um, players, not just within their their respective eras, but but overall. You know, within within the, the, the history of of, of of the entire sport, uh, I mean, there's certain there are certain records that, that, that seem. And, and I never thought in my lifetime I'd see someone break a consecutive game scoring record, that, uh, a consecutive game playing record that, that Lou Gehrig held for a long time until Cal Ripken. did I thought that was a pretty unbreakable record, but it was broken, and that's that, that's amazing. Two thousand one hundred sixty-four games that that, that that Lou Gehrig played in a row was surpassed, amazingly. Uh, but some numbers do stand out. Uh, 56, Joe DiMaggio's hitting speed. 60, Babe Ruth's home runs in a season. 61, Roger Maris uh, beating Babe Ruth. As I said, 406. Um, th- th- there's a certain approach to baseball, and, and I'm sure cricket also, uh, uh, <laughs> whereby this, the numbers become as real and as tangible as what you're actually seeing, and you know this is probably getting into a whole area I'm not uh, qualified to talk about, it, which is which is basically objectifying some some way to objectify reality, some some way of objectifying what what you're seeing of, of people agreeing, being able to agree or not. Okay, well, you have to agree. I mean, uh, you know, a three twenty batting average is very good, and it's definitely better than a two seventy. It's a measure. It's it's a way of of, of um, literally quantifying uh, uh, quantifying things that are not quantifiable so they, 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 are, they are important.
2: Uh, well I would say probably my interest in scoring was probably a way that I had and I think this is true of many kids as they reach 9, 10, 11, 12 of organizing the information that is coming towards them. It's a way of collecting things. It's a way of gathering it and, and turning it into something three-dimensional, experiences and memories and interests. So I'm not sure if uh, it's specific to cricket and baseball. Cricket and baseball allow a more elaborate scoring structure than, say, soccer does or perhaps be- basketball or other games, rugby union, for instance. But organizing things is a way, I think, that the human brain... Likes to process information. I think that's very true in um, before you hit puberty, where everything goes crazy. You're, you're sort of you're trying to organise your sensory experience. And I, for me, when I think about stats, and I too like um, like Ivanda know a whole bunch of stats. Is when I hear, for instance, that Don Bradman had a batting average of ninety nine point nine six. And that the next betting, best batting average of international cricketers who've played over 20 games for their country is somewhere in the region of 65, 66. So that he is 30 points, 30 runs per inning better than everybody else is not as interesting to me as the recognition that the, the final time he came out to bat, he needed four runs only. And it's much easier to hit a quote-unquote run in cricket than it is to hit a run in baseball. He only needed four runs to have an average of 100. This was his last ever game. It was in 1948. He came out to bat, and he was out without scoring a single run for zero. The great Don Braddon, by far the greatest player who's ever played, in his last inning, got nothing. Nutter. Zippo, the lowest score you could possibly get. So walked back to the pavilion. Excuse me, 99.94 was his statistics just before the equipment. Not 99.96, 99.94. That, for me, is more interesting, ultimately, because it shows that for all his extraordinary superhuman achievements, in the end, the game got him out for nothing. The game triumphed over this particular individual there's the poignancy there but uh, so uh, knowing a bit about numbers and narrative I think helps I think they can inform the other but I don't think one should get if you're listening out there fans and you're not a statistician it's okay you can still like both (laughs) games you you don't have to know what Lou Gehrig's batting average in
0: 1935 was you don't have to worry about that all right, on that declaration, that's, that's a good, good point to end on. So, uh, gentlemen, I enjoyed, this, I enjoyed this book a lot. I've read uh, a few introductions to cricket in the hope of learning the game, and this was the clearest explanation of, of the game that I found. So I, I, I have finally learned how to, uh, how to watch cricket and what's happening. And having read a lot of baseball books, Uh, I enjoyed this as well. This was really refreshing to read about baseball in a way that was directed to going back to your explanation of what you set out to do in a way that was directed to outsiders rather than to insiders. And uh, and I read every word of the baseball sections and uh, and I found it refreshing and, and I really enjoyed it. So so I, I learned from this book. Uh, I had fun with this book. I enjoyed it a lot. So uh, um, great work to both of you. Uh, great work on co-authoring a book that was seamless throughout and, and congratulations again to your editors. Uh, you know, the, it, there weren't skips uh, I didn't. I couldn't tell where Evander was writing where Martin was writing, and so that's a, a compliment to you and to your editors.
1: Well, you're very kind, and uh, thank you very much for this uh, interview.
0: It's really been a, a, a real gas and pleasure. Yes, wonderful. So thank you both for, for being on New Books and Sports. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Martin Rowe and Evander Lumkey about their book, Right Off the Bat, Cricket, Baseball, Literature, and Life, published in 2011 by Paul Dry Books. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from military history and public policy to popular culture and religious studies. If you like what you heard here, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening,
1: and enjoy your week.